Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple of months off the podcast for work. As soon as he's back, we'll resume the weekly Song of Ice and Fire podcast with Sansa's third chapter, In a Storm of Swords. While Jeff's away, I'm picking up right where I left off with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, we began Book 4, Chapter 5 of The Lord of the Rings, The Window on the West, with Faramir putting Frodo on trial before deciding to take him along to his hideout. And this week, we're wrapping up Book 4, Chapter 5 of The Lord of the Rings, The Window on the West. We left off with Faramir giving weight to his emotions regarding the death of his brother Boromir. But his attitude and approach changes on a dime once he gets the hobbits alone. He says that he only turned the conversation to Boromir to distract his men from Frodo's secrets regarding Isildur's bane. We thought he had exposed his emotions, his real self, but that too was a calculation to avoid giving away the secret in front of his men. That's how cunning Faramir is. He can use his genuine emotions as a smokescreen, rather than just giving full vent to them as Boromir did. Tolkien describes Faramir this way. He had been accustomed to giving way and not giving his own opinions air, while retaining a power of command among men. Faramir says that Frodo was just not honest with him. Frodo responds that he told no lies and all the truth he could. I didn't perjure myself. It's a delicate dance. But the omissions were revealing for Faramir. He could tell from Frodo's pauses and evasions that they did not part well from Boromir. Faramir says that he loved his brother but also knew him. A simple statement that says so much. His heart tells him one thing, but his mind another, and he will not allow his emotions to overtake his reason. He has enough self-control to realize that Frodo and Sam didn't murder Boromir. Something else happened. Isildur's bane was clearly a sore spot in the Fellowship. It must be a mighty heirloom, Faramir says, and he's learned from his studies that such things can ruin friendships. Faramir's love of lore isn't mere idleness. It actively helps him navigate this uncertain situation. Frodo, for his part, has also studied the stories thanks to Bilbo's tutelage and knows from them not to speak rash words regarding such things. But Faramir is a master of reading between the lines and guesses that the trouble was with Boromir alone because he wanted to bring Isildur's bane back to the kingdoms of men. Faramir mourns his brother without illusions. He wishes only that he could know more about his brother's last moments, a universal desire among those grieving for loved ones, desperate for any last scraps to cherish, as they, too, grow old and feel death approaching. But Faramir doesn't push for further details, because he got that catharsis from seeing Boromir's body. He looked beautiful. He looked at peace. Faramir says that while his brother erred in life, he died well, achieving some good thing, And we know he's right. Boromir died for Merry and Pippin. Once again, Faramir's wisdom comes from stories. When he and Boromir were children, they learned the history of Gondor and their family's place within it. The last king of Elendil's line died childless, and the stewards have presided over Gondor ever since, curators of a withering glory that was never theirs. Young Boromir was outraged by this. Why shouldn't the stewards be kings after so long? That seems like arrogance and lust for power. It is, partially, but there's more to it than that. It's also a desperate need for something to believe in, some spark of hope that says our best days are not behind us and we're not doomed to dwindle into darkness. Boromir wanted his family to rise high, 
but only because he believed the king would never return. No resurrection, no forgiveness. We are forsaken. Boromir can't be neatly separated into the good half and the bad half. The best in him and the worst were all wrapped up together. As Frodo says, Boromir always honored Aragorn. But as Faramir says, the pinch had not yet come. If they had made it together to Minas Tirith, conflict would have been practically inevitable. That town isn't big enough for the two of them. Faramir returns to the subject of stories and histories, knowledge preserved against the ravages of time. It's a treasure trove more valuable than any ring, at least to scholars like the Great Pilgrim. And who was he? Gandalf, of course. But also Mithrandir, as both elves and the men of Gondor called him. And he was known by other names, a different name wherever he went. Tolkien was always fascinated by how language intersected with identity and time. The only place Gandalf had no name was the East, because as he admitted to Faramir, he never went there. More evidence that Gandalf never really had a plan for how to get Frodo into Mordor. It's all up to the hobbits, and Gollum as well. For Gandalf was lost as far as Frodo was concerned, fallen into the abyss of Moria. And while Gandalf has returned, Frodo was still right that the person he knew and Faramir knew, Gandalf the Grey, is no more. They share the same name, but are they really the same person? Just as most hobbits saw Gandalf as nothing more than a traveling firework salesman, Faramir thought of the Grey Pilgrim as a mere scholar. Now he realizes that Mithrandir was one of the great movers and shakers of their time, a piece on the game board more significant than Faramir, or his brother, or their father. Yet there's no resentment in this for him. Faramir wishes only that the wizard had been on hand to interpret their dream in the first place. Maybe then Boromir would have been saved. But then again, maybe not. Maybe his doom was foretold by the fates. Again, Faramir is Tolkien's thoughtful man, interested in probing the possibilities of what could be, but aware of the limits of his own perspective. What stories will they tell of me, of what I do here and now? After all, Gandalf never told Faramir what was to come nor exactly what he was looking for in Gondor's archives. The reader knows that this must have happened in between the first two chapters of the story, after Bilbo left the Shire and before Gandalf arrived to tell Frodo the backstory of the One Ring. But even if Gandalf gave no answers, his questions were revealing to keen minds like Faramir's. The latter was able to guess that Isildur must have taken some great power from Sauron. Unlike the movies, in which the Stuart family knows that Isildur's bane is the ring from the start, the truth has been lost in the mists of time. It's been thousands of years, after all, many lifetimes even for the Dunedain. Only now, learning that Gandalf founded and led the Fellowship, does Faramir make the connection between that research and the dream he and his brother shared about Isildur's bane. He is now the researcher looking back on his own life and the lives of others. If Isildur's bane is a great weapon taken from the enemy, then it doesn't surprise Faramir that his brother would try to take it. But Faramir? No. He won't take it. And not just because it would involve assaulting Frodo. He says he wouldn't take it if he found it lying by the side of the highway, not even if it meant victory in the war. Why? Because Faramir dreams not of victory in war. He has a dream of spring. The flowering of the white tree, and a city resting in peace and beauty as it once did. He wants Gondor to be a queen among many queens, he says, sharing in the bounty of Middle-earth and the satisfaction of storytelling with all the other free peoples. He doesn't want to set himself up as a king like Boromir dreamed. He doesn't want Gondor to dominate others, even if they wanted to be dominated, 
We've been talking about Lothlorien throughout this chapter, and here we see a direct echo of Galadriel's temptation to become a lord of light, dominating through beauty and love. All shall love me and despair. She resisted that temptation, seeing that the ring would corrupt all her good intentions, and Faramir does the same. The ring won't bring back Gondor as it was. It would only turn Gondor into an extension of Mordor. As I was saying last week, Faramir is Tolkien's revised model of heroism, not as obsessed with glory through victory as the classical prideful model embodied by Boromir. Faramir embodies humility when he tells Frodo that he does not even want to know more about Isildur's Bane, only to help if he can. And still Frodo holds back. Fair speech may hide a foul heart, as Sam thinks to himself later in the chapter. Boromir spoke kind words as well and did heroic deeds to help his comrades before he turned. The potential to fall is always there. Frodo himself will be proof of that before the end. As they've been talking, they've been walking through the woods of Athelion. Tolkien describes our heroes as gray and green shadows, walking silently under a roof of trees. And again, this feels like a deliberate callback to the Fellowship entering Lothlorien. Just in case the reader hasn't picked up on the parallel, Faramir stops at one point to blindfold the hobbits. And as Frodo says, that's exactly what went down in Lothlorien. Friends must be strangers once more. Faramir says that the difference is his bachelor pad isn't nearly as beautiful as Lothlorien. But then again, the Fellowship didn't get to see the golden wood in its glory days. They saw it in winter and long after the fall. Yet it was still beautiful. All the richer, Haldir told the Fellowship, because of what they have lost. Same applies here, to Heneth Anun. And to explain this place, we gotta dive headfirst into etymology. Athelion is basically Wales, as far as Tolkien's linguistics are concerned. Welsh words are the inspiration for many of the place names in the province, and Heneth Anun is no exception. The adjective hen is the only one in Welsh to precede the noun. It means old or ancient. Neth refers to a resting place, which certainly lines up with how Faramir describes this place, a refuge where hobbits may pass the night in peace. As for Anun, well, that's the other world of Welsh mythology, where maidens like Goldberry dwell. Anun was a place of eternal youth and beauty before the Christians showed up, exiling the pagan gods there and transforming it into hell, or so the story goes. Prose stories in Middle Welsh from the 11th century tell the story of a prince who reaches Anun through a cave, which also lines up perfectly with Tolkien's Heneth Anun. Traditionally, Anun is a land of the dead, associated with the West because that's where the sun sets. And lo and behold, this chapter is called The Window on the West. As with Lothlorien, Tolkien builds the suspense by describing the hobbits walking blind, only able to hear and feel the changes around them before restoring their sight with a flood of imagery, reflecting their rebirth in sacred territory. The window is a cave opening over which tumbles a waterfall. It's awe-inspiring, so beautiful it wipes out all other thought. All you can do is look at the sunlight flickering through the water like Boromir's boat. The rich light of the divine filtering through chinks in our material reality. It's all the colors of the spectrum, the cycle of nature-given form. Tolkien describes the light as unconsuming fire, burning brightly without destruction, the essence of divinity. What is the human soul but an unconsuming fire with a thin skin of water around it? That's how Frodo looked to Gandalf and to Sam. He could be looking in a mirror seeing beneath the surface of things to the cosmic dance that will outlast the shadow. But unlike Lothlorien, Faramir admits, there is no kingly hall to match it. That's the major difference between the two similar locations. There's no city in the trees, no Carisgalathon here. Merely a rough-hewn cave, hidden by the cunning engineering of men, 
redirecting the water, but not in a greedy, malevolent way like Saruman. More subtle and humble. Only for concealment, only for defense. Carving out a womb-like space where the dream of better days can be kept alive. The only way out besides the entranceway is through the waterfall, which leads to a pool below, filled with stones as sharp as knives. And this is such a perfect metaphor for the themes of time and nostalgia that animate the Lord of the Rings. You can look through the window, onto the west, the memory of what used to be, the sunset. That's what the men do at dinner. Look longingly toward Numenor that once was, the cradle of their civilization, before they tried to attack and dethrone God. It's a silent prayer. But if you try to pass through that window and seize divine glory as Boromir did, you will fall and die for your efforts. As painful as it is to sit in this Spartan cave and wait for rebirth, it's better than trying to claim it by force. The pool also sets up Gollum's presence in the next chapter, as does the report from one of Faramir's men about a very large squirrel without a tail who hissed at him from a tree. Once again, Faramir doesn't miss a trick. When he says they don't need any creatures from Mirkwood in the Thillian, he glances at the hobbits. He knows that this was the third member of their party, the one no one's talking about. He's more right than he realizes. Gollum did time in Mirkwood, kept in prison by Legolas's dad. The evening meal at Hanathanun is simple, the Spartan repast of guerrilla warriors. But it seems a feast to the hobbits, like the rabbit was even without taters. They feel better than they have since, of course, Lothlorien. And then it's back to story time. Hospitality must be returned, and we are not out of the woods yet, literally. Frodo steers away from Isildur's bane as Faramir did during the trial. Instead, he exaggerates Boromir's part. Stories change, not only with the storyteller, but with the audience. What do they need out of this story? What form of it will make sense to them? Tolkien knows this from translation. There is no platonic ideal form of narrative. It's all about integration, interpretation. Telling stories is all we do in Gondor, says Faramir, because the present is but the ruins of the past, and we have lost all faith in the future. The sword of Elendil alone can't stop this. He and his men came ashore from the fall of Numenor, determined to do better, to redeem Middle-earth as well as themselves from Sauron. And for the most part, Faramir says, we have failed. Some of us actively joined the Dark Lord, but even those who didn't soon turned on each other. Only in Gondor was the light and beauty preserved, and even here we fell short of our standards for ourselves. Why? Because of the enemy. The ancient enemy. The only enemy that matters. Not Sauron, but death. And death is merely the attack dog of time, because the Lord of the Rings is all about time, and there is no power greater than time. Faramir delivers a spine-tingling monologue that follows the same arc as Tom Bombadil's song, The Rise and the Fall of Man. The Numenorians lost their kingdom and their hunger to defeat death and attain life everlasting. Their descendants didn't learn the lesson, and so the bill kept coming due. Their tombs were grander than the houses of the living, dead ancestors revered more than sons, and so the last king died childless. For all that Tolkien loves stories and histories, he wasn't actually as nostalgic for the past as his reputation suggests. Right here, he's showing us the danger of always looking back. You forget about the present, and with it, the future. To do so is to abandon your responsibility to prepare for what comes next. Doing that involves admitting your mortality. And the kings of men have not been humble enough to do that, obsessed with heraldry, asking questions of the stars, as Faramir says. That makes me think of Saruman with his Palantir, but even more so of Denethor with his. 
Ironic that Faramir says the steward line proved hardier than the king's. Denethor may not be from the line of the kings, but he is making their mistakes. Previous stewards were wiser, however, and Faramir says the key to their wisdom was making allies, recruiting defenders not just from the main cities, but from their folk by the sea and in the mountains, and even beyond Gondor. We've already met the Rohirrim, the warriors of Rohan, and heard their origin story through the legend of Eorl. Eorlingas, they call themselves. Rohirrim is what Gondor calls them, as Faramir says. Language reflecting identity and time. He tells us about how Gondor made peace with those proud horsemen, ending years of strife. Gondor ceded the land that is now Rohan, and over the centuries, their bond grew. The Rohirrim still speak their own tongue, as we saw in Book 3, and keep to their own customs and traditions. But this does not diminish the bond. It enhances it. As Faramir says, the men of Gondor love the men of Rohan, because they are so different. Bold, blonde, and beautiful. They remind stale, stagnant Gondor of the possibilities of youth, of what men were like when they first beheld Middle-earth under the sun. All things shining. But then again, remember what Rohan was like when we were introduced to it? It was all paranoid, suspicious warriors, and a king surrendering to time. They might seem young relative to Gondor, but their history seems as long to them. And Gondor is an upstart infant compared to Rivendell or Lothlorien. It's all in where you're standing. Back in the mists of time, the ancestors of the Rohirrim and the Numenorians were kin. The former, Faramir suggests, were those who refused the call to go west. And of course, refused the call is a very significant phrase when you look at stories in heroes' journey terms. It was a sundering of destinies, a turning away from the light of God in favor of the tangible realities of Earth. Faramir explains that this decision point is the primary means by which the men of Gondor distinguished themselves from other men. They answered the call, became the High Men, eventually the Numenorians, And they were cut above the Middle Men, Twilight Men like the Rahiram, to say nothing of the Wild Men of the Darkness. Yet over time, those easy categories have blurred. Faramir already admitted that many Numenorians fell into darkness, and just as the Rohirrim have become more like the Men of Gondor, so the Men of Gondor have become more like the Rohirrim. We are Twilight Men now, Faramir confesses, living in the afterdays as Legolas has said. We merely have the memory of different times. And as Gimli said, memory is not what the heart desires. It would almost be better if we had never been other than we are, because then we wouldn't be haunted by it. We dreamed so high, but in the end, it only meant we had farther to fall. We're losing our subtle refinement, our intellect, our belief in things other than fighting to survive. Faramir acknowledges that's by necessity. Sauron has made us warlike, made us in his image which is also what the elves of Lothlorien said. In doing so, he has, at some level, already won. It's that process, Faramir said, that produced Boromir, a classical heroic warrior so mighty he couldn't conceive of being anything else, of any other kind of victory. And so the horn he blew louder than anyone has been cut into. Who are we now at the end of all things? For all that Faramir implies that contact with the Rahirim sullied the noble ideals of the Numenorians, that alliance is crucial to standing against Sauron in this war. Only together can they stand. Divided, they fall. Throughout the story, Tolkien shows us the value of curiosity, solidarity, and love between different cultures and peoples. We saw it in Bree, with men and hobbits living side by side. We saw it with Gimli bonding first with Galadriel and then with Legolas. And even though the Numenorians and the Rohirrim are both humans, Faramir's monologue shows us how the Numenorians thought themselves a cut above, more like elves than their fellow men. Sam pipes up to make that connection clear. 
He's noticed that while Faramir doesn't say much about the elves, what he does say indicates he respects them, even reveres them. And that makes Sam like Faramir, because he felt the same way. We're all children to the elves. The elves at Rivendell admitted they sometimes have trouble telling the younger races apart, bound as we are by death. After all, Faramir points out, what really drove them apart wasn't even Sauron, as much as, quote, the slow changes of time, in which each kind walked further down their sundered roads. The road is always linked to story in The Lord of the Rings, and the men and the elves have become stories to each other. We don't know the elves, Faramir admits, but we fear them all the same. We fear them because we don't know them anymore. That's why it's so perilous for men to stray into the golden wood. The past is a foreign country. Yet Faramir can't help but dream of the fairy tale kingdom where Boromir got the belt and the boat that bore him beyond the Vale of Tears, and the lady at the heart of it all. Sam rhapsodizes about Galadriel, while claiming he's not equipped to actually do so. It reminds me of how Pippin told his companions that he couldn't actually describe what the Ents are like. It's a visceral experience, a flash of philosophical insight that cannot adequately translate to language. No one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Yet stories are their own form of visceral experience, detached from what living through the events would be like, yet casting a unique spell that stays with you. We read The Hobbit, many of us as kids. It became a cherished memory, part of our emotional history. That's exactly what Bilbo's adventures are for Frodo and Sam, a story they know so well it's like they lived through it themselves. Sam says he's no poet like Bilbo or Aragorn who worked together on a poem in Rivendell, but the way Sam describes Galadriel is poetic and insightful, a series of contradictions, hard as diamonds, soft as moonlight, warm as sunlight, cold as frost in the stars. Sam, after saying that, says it's all nonsense, because as Tolkien told us in the prologue, hobbits like their stories laid out fair and square, with no contradictions. But life is full of contradictions, and so are stories. Sam is just on the cusp of realizing that. He has seen opposites collapsed into a whole, but still thinks of that as bizarre, rather than the way of the world. He can't think of himself as a poet because he's a hobbit and a gardener to boot. But Bilbo is a hobbit, and as George R. R. Martin would say, being a storyteller can be a lot like being a gardener. Faramir contributes to Sam's list with another unmatched pair. Perilously fair. The danger of the light, as I talked about in my Lothlorien episode. That which is so beautiful, you destroy yourself trying to possess it, become it, or both. Maybe, Sam says. Galadriel is undeniably powerful, and power is inherently perilous. Sam the poet pulls out some perfect similes. Galadriel is like a rock, against which you could dash yourself like a boat. And that makes me think of Boromir's boat, and how it magically wasn't dashed against the rocks, indicating that his soul is passing beyond the magnetic pull of power. But, Sam says, Galadriel is also like the river flowing around the rock. She isn't just an object eroded by time. She is time itself story itself. And you could drown in her, Sam says, like a hobbit in a boat. He's talking about Frodo's parents, killed by the first tentative steps into a new world. If not for that, Frodo would never have lived with Bilbo, never acquired the ring, and none of this would have happened. What made Galadriel so special for Sam, what he's trying to put into words for Faramir, is that for a moment he stood outside the process, watching life unfold endlessly like a story he was reading, he felt small and grieved for his blissful ignorance, 
but he also understands the world better than before. More to the point, he understands himself better than before, how his choices interact with his immortal invisible destiny. He says not that Galadriel could dash you to pieces, but that you could dash yourself to pieces against her. What will you make of power? The choice is still yours, as it was for her and for Boromir. Sam suddenly realizes he's said too much, wandering into the directly confrontational space that Frodo was working so diligently to avoid. Faramir, once again, is too smart to fool. He realizes that Sam is saying Boromir brought the peril with him. Last week, Faramir mourned for the brother he knew, wondering if Galadriel had changed him. The hard truth is that she didn't, merely brought his conflicted nature to the light. Sam falls over himself, apologizing and clarifying and insisting that Boromir was a fine man and Sam didn't wish him any harm. It's just that when exposed to the light of Lorien, it became clear that Boromir wanted the ring. You know, that thing we've been keeping hidden from you this whole time? Oh shit. This chapter has been tense, melancholy, and now takes a hard turn into comedy. Right after Sam went too far talking about Boromir, he immediately goes too far again talking about something way more important. Frodo was checked out, staring into the middle distance, thinking about how much he needs a nap, and he snaps back too late to stop Sam from making all the verbal fencing and parrying in this whole damn chapter moot with a single word. It's a hilarious expression of how Sam's virtuous honesty can get him into deep trouble. As his dad said, he just can't keep his foot out of his mouth. Even funnier is when he goes, ah, well, nevertheless, and wags his finger in Faramir's face like he still has any credibility, telling him he better not hold this against Frodo. Unfortunately, there's no instructing the jury to disregard that statement. Faramir fully, finally, understands what it is he's dealing with. The answer to all the riddles, as he says. The hobbits have escaped Boromir by running into his brother's arms, and now Faramir has them in his power. They're in a cave with no knowledge of the way out, surrounded by his men. If Faramir wants the ring, he can take it, easier than Boromir. And for a moment, it looks like that's exactly what's going to happen. He stands, eyes glinting as the hobbits reach for their swords in a desperate last stand against the future. The emerging world of men who will eat the world more comprehensively than Sauron ever could. And then Faramir sits back down, laughing to himself in sorrow. Laughter and tears, the essence of the Lord of the Rings, like Sam when he learned he was coming with Frodo on his quest. Faramir is laughing out of relief that Boromir's last moments are no longer a mystery to him, which as he said was what hurt him the most. Now Faramir understands, because he's gone through the crucible himself, just as the old stories mean more to Sam as he goes through his own. Faramir says the ring was too sore a trial for Boromir, calling back to him putting Frodo on trial earlier in the chapter. Gandalf said the same thing. The ring is a trap for men like Boromir. Faramir already trapped himself by pledging he was uninterested in taking whatever Frodo carried. Vows are wind and words, though, so it matters more that Faramir says he really does not want the ring. His men demonstrate the same strength by deliberately ignoring what the hobbits just gave away. The story has been told. The trust has been earned. The strange and the familiar brought together. Even as Faramir says he understands Frodo better now, he also marvels at the hobbits' selfless courage, so unlike the world of men. The hobbits are not only a new people, he says, but a new world. The Shire must be a place of peace, paradise upon this fallen earth. No, it's not, Frodo says, and this is more than foreshadowing for Saruman taking over. It's an acknowledgement that no place is perfect. 
Nostalgia makes us think so, encouraged by myth, distorted by time. That's what they've been talking about with regards to men and elves alike. It applies to hobbits, too. Folks must grow weary there, as Faramir says, as all gardens do under the sun. Tolkien linking the cycles of the natural world to his Christian ethos. Faramir grants them the mercy of sleep, asking only to be told where they're going so he can help them in the morning. Time passes, he says, summing up the whole story in two words. Time has passed for elves and men and hobbits. Maybe it passes differently, but the river still runs on and on like the road. They've all been humbled with a lot of sorrow and grief along the way, but the silver lining is that they can share their sorrows and stories, standing side by side with others. It's only possible if we can bring ourselves to trust one another. And after a long chapter full of evasive half-truths, there's a real catharsis to Frodo saying out loud that his mission is to go to Mordor, destroy the ring in the fires of Mount Doom, and that he no longer thinks he's going to be able to do it. He sways, falls, and Faramir catches him. A simple but profound act of mercy that once and for all severs him from the legacy of his brother. He has Frodo's back, literally. This was his trial, more than it was Frodo's, and he has come through the fire of it. When Sam revealed the ring, he said it was a chance for Faramir to show his quality. Now he has, Sam says, and it's of the highest quality. Praise from the praiseworthy, Faramir says, turning the compliment around, his essential humility. Frodo compared Faramir to the elves, and so have I. But Sam pays the ultimate compliment at the end of the chapter by comparing him to Gandalf. Faramir's response epitomizes the bittersweet tone of the Lord of the Rings. You discern, from far away, the heir of Numenor. It's the last remnant, ruins seen at a distance, a memory. Nothing more, and nothing less. It might be enough to sustain us. It might be enough to buy just a little more time. So usually at the end of each of these Lord of the Rings episodes, I wrap up by talking about the movie adaptations from Peter and Jackson and company that came out around 20 years ago and how they handled each stretch of the material. I'm not going to do that for this episode. It's already running pretty long, and the Lord of the Rings movies don't really go into much of this, and I'll have more to say about what does happen with Faramir and the direction the movies go on the next episode. So thank you so much for listening. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a bunch more benefits. You can follow us at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, on Twitter, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. And you can find me at Quentin on Twitter. Next week, Gollum shows up to ruin everything in Book 4, Chapter 6 of The Lord of the Rings, The Forbidden Pool. So thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week with The Lord of the Rings.